Welcome to the Unconventional Leadership Podcast, a weekly podcast where we dive into the latest leadership news, tips, and strategies. I'm your host, Mike Sipple Jr., co-founder and CEO of the Talent Magnet Institute, best-selling author, speaker, and podcaster. Through the insightful interviews with experts from various industries and backgrounds, we unpack the skills, traits, and mindsets crucial for effective leadership in today's world. From embracing failure to leading with empathy, we uncover the unconventional strategies shaping the future of leadership. Whether you're a seasoned leader seeking to stay ahead of the curve or aspiring to develop the skills and insights to succeed, the Unconventional Leadership Podcast has something for you. Join us each week as we challenge the status quo and explore what it means to be an unconventional leader. Well, welcome everyone to this week's episode of the Unconventional Leadership Podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us this morning or this afternoon or this evening, whenever you're listening to this episode. I get the distinct pleasure today to be with Paul Alon. Uh, Paul is a deliberate HR professional who believes philosophy is a difference-making pursuit in life and business. Learning, teaching, and being a service to others are his purpose. Paul currently serves as the VP of People and Culture of CETA of Cook County in Chicago. He's also a best-selling author of the book, People Fusion, Best Practices to Build and Retain a Strong Team. Paul's a proud husband, father, a dis obedient cat owner, Star Wars nerd, and a metalhead. Paul, thank you so much for joining us for this week's episode. Mike, my pleasure. Thank you for asking me to be on. I am super excited to talk with you. Man, it is a blast to have great friends on. Paul and I, Paul, you and I have met through a variety of HR community circles. We've never worked together per se, but we've recently done some work together in the People Fusion book. So it's a, a fellow co-author here in the studio. <laughs> no, I, I appreciate that. You know, you're one of those, the names and the faces that always pop up on all the social media. Whenever I talk with people, everyone's like, oh, Mike, 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 Mike. So I'm like, <laughs> when you reached out, that was th this was super exciting for me. And I have to thank you because I would not have been a published author if you didn't share some of your valuable time with me and be generous to convince me that was the right thing to do. So. Oh man. Yeah. Great conversation leading into that. I happened to be riding my Peloton, I think when I took that call. So yeah. thank, <laughs> thank you for yeah. dealing with me of trying to make sure I got my workout in. So Paul, one of the things I love and I love about the chapter that you wrote in People Fusion on the philosopher manager, but I I'd really, I love, I think we all do. We all love your theory of and thoughts and leadership around being a philosopher and what that means in the workplace and how I can bring that into the work that I do. So I would, you know, use the word unpack. I'd love to talk with you about that and your methodology of leading well and bringing in thinking like a philosopher into leading well and how it impacts the world around us. So can you walk us into your mind and your heart space a little bit with this topic? Yeah, I appreciate the, the the question. To me, you know, leadership should be difference-making, right? So there is this, I want to say, a, a misnomer that philosophy is just for old bearded white dudes that live in ivory towers and discuss how many 
angels can fit on the head of a pin. And that's not the case. True philosophy, to me and to a lot of the philosophers that I study, true philosophy is meant for the real world. It's meant for the real individual. To be a philosopher means to look at yourself every day and try and live a better life and live by values that you espouse to make the world a better place. And that all starts with yourself. When you make yourself a better individual, you are inherently creating a better space around you in the world. So I took that approach and applied it to business, applied it to my work as an HR professional. So to me, when I do HR or I'm HRing in that intentional sort of way, in that philosophical sort of way, that is me being a philosopher. And I can guarantee almost all of the people that are listening to this now have a very similar experience when they're being intentional, when they're thinking things through, when they're not reacting, when they're trying to resolve certain things and go through it, they are in themselves being philosophers. So mm. I think it's just a different approach that is embedded in a lot of philosophy, but maybe just not well known and brought to the world, mm. I, I think, as directly as I'm trying to. And I know we talk about those difficult skills that we're all trying to build in ourselves and in the team around us of critical thinking, problem solving, you know, asking the right questions, managing through conflict, dealing with radical candor and how, you know, how can we get our team to be better critical thinkers, better listeners to one another, hearing the unsaid. And a lot of those thought processes, what I've gained from your leadership and the content you put out is that's what's being a philosopher is, right? Asking those questions, seeking to understand, thinking about the unsaid and how that impacts can have a positive impact on the workplace. Mm -hmm. I think one of the, the things I've discovered during this journey over the last decade plus or so as I've philosophizing <laughs> up to this point is nothing in the world is new that has not happened before. And we are, you know, we're sitting on essentially a piece of dust that's floating around the universe. And our time on this little tiny piece of dust is so minuscule compared to everything else. Mm -hmm. Now, Marcus Aurelius, who is a Roman emperor and a philosopher, probably one of the, the truest examples of a philosopher king, a philosopher leader, would write in his journal that he eventually got found and published into the meditations. Now, this was his own private journal. He never meant for it to be published or, or shown to the world. But he wrote to himself, when he wakes up, remember that you will deal with rabble-rousers, you will deal with ingrates, you will deal with people who don't know any better. Now, mind you, this is one of the most powerful men in the world who's reminding himself that every day he's going to face people that he doesn't want to get along with, probably doesn't want to be with, but he has to because that's his duty and he needs to do it in a kind and approachable way. Mm. I think of that every time, or I try to think of that every time in HR, we have such a, a difficult job, not that others don't, but we deal with people, unfortunately, at their worst at times. Mm. It's just a fact of the job. So you're trying to do your job and when people aren't reacting in a way that you think, I think back to that. And it's like, what makes me so different than an emperor who lived 2000 years ago, who's dealing with the same stuff? Everything's cyclical. I just have to use this wisdom that's already been passed down for generations and apply it in a modern way. Mm. And 
Paul, as it relates to the, you just mentioned the challenges that the HR and people operation leaders have and the roles that they're in because they're navigating humans, right? Humans are messy. We all bring that mess with us. You know, there's things that I've been dealing with in just the last few weeks. It's like, wow, I've never dealt with this before. And it's very stressful and it's super emotional. And how do I help? How do I lead well in it? Because I've never been in it myself. But we're the leader, rather, whether you're a parent, whether you're the friend, whether you're the mentor, whether you're the, the, the quote unquote manager or boss that people look to for direction, we've got to lead real time, right? So how do you leverage the skills of being a philosopher while specifically managing like, well, I've never dealt with that before. I don't know the answer. So how do I leverage the skills of communications to help me take a step back and do what you just said, manage the difficult situation? No, that is a, that's a fantastic question. And I would say that it's one I'm still dealing with and working through. And that's the point. I think of, I don't think of, but I believe it's a fact, if not a fact, a very good truism that the mind, it, it is a muscle, right? So if you are like Arnold Schwarzenegger and you're hitting the gym 5 a.m. every day when you're 16 through 19, all of a sudden in your 20s, you're going to have Arnold's physique at his prime. I think of the exact same thing with the mind. You're not going to become a great leader overnight. It's something you need to work on daily. It's something you need to work on uh, minute by minute, hour by hour, opportunity by opportunity. And I think that's part of the mindset. When you're facing a difficult situation, it is only difficult if you determine it is difficult. Mm. Maybe in that situation, you're trying to determine that this is an opportunity to get better at something I'm not very good at, which mm. may be confrontation. It might be communication. It might be taking a step back and replying rather than reacting kind of a thing. So mm -hmm. It, it, it's something leaders need to fall in love with the process of becoming a good leader every single day of your life until, until you, the end, whatever mm. that end looks like. So yeah, yeah it, it's something I work on and try to work on every single day. And there are times that I fail, but then I realize I get back up because your your Steve Brownism, people are messy, is one that I try and keep to the forefront all the time. Yeah. Yeah. And I love the usage of the word becoming, right? Because becoming is a journey. You're not reaching the, you know, honestly, none of us, to those listening, you know, Paul and I and you, those listening are not going to reach the journey where it's like, ah, we're here and we are the leader that everybody needs and I need for myself. And I've mastered self-care. I've mastered empowering and leading others to the best of their abilities. Like it is a continual journey, helping people around us. The goal is to keep that hunger and desire to, to want to continue the journey, right? And not get exhausted from it. Um, Paul, with that being said, you work for one of the largest community action agencies in the country and one of the largest regions in the United States in Chicagoland region. And you're focusing on a mission that is a complicated and difficult and messy topic of helping individuals, families, and communities who are facing poverty 
to secure a better quality of life. Can you share a little bit about the work that your organization does and uh, why you are so involved and why you love the work that you do? Yeah, so the Community Economic Development Association, CETA, is one of the largest community action agencies, which is founded in the war on poverty during the 1960s with President Johnson and his Great Society Initiative. So the the whole point of a community action agency is to have this not-for-profit presence in the community with community involvement. So we try and involve our clients who we're trying to help because they know their situation better than we do. So how can we assist with that and helping to lift them out of poverty? So a lot of our programs are probably ones that a lot of listeners may be familiar with. So we do what's called LIHEAP, Low Income Housing Energy Assistance Programs. There are LIHEAP programs across the country. We help people keep their lights on. And especially in Chicago, helping people keep their lights on, their furnaces running during cold winter months. We do weatherization of houses. So insulation, a lot of individuals with poverty don't have that insulation or, or their windows are cracked or those type of things. We go in and help weatherize their home. Mm. And then one of my other favorite programs that we provide is called Women, Infant, and Children, which is WIC, which is a national program. And that's helping young, young mothers learn how to be mothers and give nutritious diets and, and learn breastfeeding techniques and, and all those type of, in many instances, life-saving techniques to, to people. So yeah, our mission, I'm a very mission driven person. So I think really connecting with that. And I grew, you know, I, I led mostly privileged life, but I did grow up on the poor side of things, broken household, all those type of things. I was lucky to get out of it. So it's one of those things I understand it to a point. And I, it's something I want to try and give back. So what are some of the skills? Because I assume not everyone you employ has lived that life experience. How are you equipping people with skills to help manage effectively and really, you know, look at things from a compassion lens versus a sympathy lens? Mm-hmm. Yeah, we have, we're lucky that one of the ways that we try to attract talent is we lead with the mission. and. Okay. When people join our organization, we lead with, this is why you're here. Mm. I usually try and use the example, though it's not as grandiose, is one of the examples that I share was when, you know, Kennedy was walking around what eventually became the Kennedy Space Center, I think. He met up with, I think it was a, a janitor, and then he goes, well, okay, how are you after pleasantries? What do you do here at, at, at the Space Center? He goes, I help put people on the moon. That to me is truly buying into the mission. You know, mm-hmm. he's does important work. Janitors do important work, but he didn't lead with that. He led with putting people on the moon. So I try and instill that idealism into when we mm-hmm. recruit people that you're helping awesome. someone through poverty. You're a lifesaver mm-hmm. in many instances, and that's not hyperbole. It's true. So we try and lead and bring people in with that. Now, once they're into our organization, one of my favorite projects that I helped lead and build at the organization is what we call CETA University. So it is a leadership development track. So we try to combat the Peter principle, right, of just promoting people because they're good at the former job. We want them to be prepared so that when they become leaders, they have that understanding that you are great at 
making calls. You were great at doing widgets or whatever. But now you're leading a team. Being a great widget maker will not make you a great leader. Yeah. These skills will. Now, it gives you the foundation and you can understand your team, but that's not enough. So that's the whole point of CETA University is developing our leaders and bringing them along and giving them the skill sets so that they will succeed. We're not setting them up for failure, which a lot of organizations are probably familiar with, mm-hmm. unfortunately. Yeah. How, how do you get into that program as a team member? Like how does an associate get either nominated or sign up? Both. Right now, it's, it's, it's mostly a nomination, a nomination track, but most people should know about it and, and continue to, to espouse it throughout the organization. Mm-hmm. So they are encouraged, go to your leader, go to your manager and say, I want to take this. And then their manager will sponsor them to, to join the program. So we do it about once a year and we're constantly tweaking it. This is actually only ran the pilot last year. Okay. So this year we're finally redeveloping it and and getting it even further along. Hmm. So now we're in it to win it sort of a thing. What are some of those key things that you identified of like, well, people lead others, but don't have the skills and capabilities in X, Y, and Z topics. Therefore, that's what we're going to really focus on to help prep them for that leadership move. What are some of those specifics that you all identified and then designed for such a program? Well, I would say the top ones that I focus on and the top ones that actually got highly rated because I'm big on communication. I'm big on not putting people through things that are a waste of their time. So mm-hmm. they're, they're stakeholders. They're helping me build this program. So, so the top ones that people really find valuable is we, we employ predictive index where we're at. And predictive index is a behavioral assessment. It's very similar to like a DISC or a Myers-Briggs, but it takes it to that next level. And really, rather than just, well, this is your personality. This is no, these are behavioral types. This is how you typically default to function. Mm -hmm. This is how you become self-aware. So that is really the foundation because all leaders need to be self-aware. They need to understand that their emotions arise during certain situations Mm -hmm. and not to suppress them, but to understand, oh, this is going to put me in this situation. This is how I'll behave. I need to combat that or lean into it, whatever the, the situation dictates. So Predictive index, it all starts with self-awareness and then awareness of your teams. After that, communication is just key. So all problems, and I thoroughly believe this in personal life, but also business, I would say almost all, if not all, problems arise from miscommunication, poor communication, or lack thereof. So we really teach people, and, and this is why I love it, because you always hear, well, you're not a good communicator, or you need to communicate better or it's like, what does communication mean? So we actually teach people what communication means. And then finally, the other one is conflict resolution, how to have constructive conflicts, which a lot of times when you hear conflict, it automatically denotes negativity. That's not the case. Right. You know, I talked about earlier about things can be opportunities. Conflict is an opportunity. It's only bad because we're naming it bad. But it can be good. There are good conflicts. You know, iron sharpens iron. There is no movement without friction. That's the type of mindset we try and instill with people, that you have to have those hard conversations. 
because leaders lean into them. That's awesome, Paul. It's so interesting to me that, I mean, even for me personally, right? It probably took me 13 years to figure out that it's good to have that, that dissonance, that tension, you know, the sandpaper, the, you know, that's the, as we lean into conflict, as we have the tough, necessary conversations, if we avoid them, we're in fact not helping the way we could and the way we should, right? Because we're avoiding the discussions that are needed to be had in order to actually move things forward. And we're kind of placating and we're passive aggressive and we're all these things. I mean, I led for over a decade like that, right? That like, oh, I'm not even going to go there. We're just going to hope that fixes itself versus leaning into the dissonance. And, you know, the, the book that I think really helped me get over it. And really it wasn't the book. It was a leader who was so bought into the five dysfunctions that he sat me down and like coached me up on why he expects his leadership team to have dissonance, to disagree. And we were helping the CEO build his team. He had just moved to the United States. He was putting in a leadership team for a, a manufacturing turnaround. And he was so bought into the five dysfunctions. And he's the first leader who really educated me that like, make sure when we're building this team, that people are not joining my leadership team that are conflict avoidant, because I will create conflict to create better conversation. And he just, there was no negative view and perspective of the word conflict. It was actually, I think maybe the first people who I'd ever met who like conflict was exciting to him, right? So, and what you just said is that you're helping people kind of view it that way, that like there's conflict everywhere and put two people in any conversation, conflict exists, right? And that's kind of how we were created. Like conflict's going to exist because we all bring our own perspectives, our own lived life experiences. We have our own views, our own definition of, of safety and what's right. And again, for those listening, like there's maybe some of you that are still sitting where I once was and I'm still on the journey myself, right? Keeping a list of like, oh, I got to bring this up. Why didn't I bring this up? Well, because the agenda ended and we just needed to move on. No, no, no. Have the conversation, create the dialogue. Paul, give me your own lived experience in this topic of conflict. I think it's a great, great topic for our audience. Yeah, I am naturally, and I think most people say this, I don't know how true or, or how ubiquitous it really is throughout humanity, but I am conflict avoidant. You know, I, I will just push away. I just ignore it historically. Now, as I've grown as a leader in, in those, I, I've become more understanding and acknowledging that that can't be the case, right? So it's something I'm still working through, to, to be honest. I, I've there, are, it, it's my default. Mm -hmm. But going back to self awareness and self understanding and, and high EQ, whatever you want to call it, all those things, I know that. So in real time, and maybe to bring it full circle with everything, it's something that I recognize that I'm working on every day. So it's when I first started out early in my career, I may not have noticed it was going on. Now I'm very well aware that I know it's going on because mm -hmm. I've trained myself over time to understand my ticks and understand what I'm doing in real time. Mm -hmm. So when I know I'm avoiding it, I'll make a mental note. Okay, you know you're avoiding it, so you got to make a decision right now. 
you're either going to stop ignoring it or you're going to take a note and then address it afterward or at another time. But you're not going to just continue to avoid it kind of a thing. So that is much like you, Mike, something I continue to work on and mm-hmm. try and find my quote unquote feng shui around that. Yeah. Yeah. I think this word of curiosity, like when you start recognizing that, wow, Paul and Mike don't agree on this topic, but if we both bring curiosity into the conversation, at least I will want to and desire to learn more about why Paul has this perspective. And Paul, you would look at, I wonder why Mike thinks this way or why he's so strong minded and stuck on this point, right? And maybe it's because of past experience. Maybe it's because we've already tried that once here and past leadership would say, well, if we tried it once and it didn't work, let's not readdress it. Or you just have built in innate beliefs that like, well, it's this way because, right? And I love even Paul with the philosopher mindset. I mean, think about all of the conflict that philosophers create and debate and say may not be right, right? We don't have to think about it this way. And it is just because, right? We really want to understand that. So that, that word of curiosity versus, you know, if you're argumentative, that's not conflict. That's, that's not the way to bring it into conflict. It's all around curiosity, not being argumentative. Right. Yeah. So was just going to say, there's an entire methodology around what you're just describing, the Socratic method. Now, you know, I always say you take it within doses, right? Because Socrates was put to death because of that. And, and I always think of the show House, which I, I really liked. That was based on the entire Socratic method. Now, that got the results that they needed. But at the end of the day, was it as productive or as destructive or constructive? But mm-hmm. again, I think... This is timely because just the other day on LinkedIn, I, I posted something that I think hit a nerve with a lot of people in a good way, that leaders lean into discomfort and leaders need to have curiosity. And I name that specifically curiosity, non-judgment, openness. Mm. That's the foundation of being able to lean into discomfort. So you have to get comfortable with being curious, non-judgmental and being open. Mm. Otherwise, you, you'll struggle as I have up to this point and and probably will in the future still to, to get to that point. Yeah. You mentioned earlier, Paul, that one of the things that you do from a skills development is you all lead with recruiting and getting the right mindsets around the mission, right? So when we get the people right that are mission oriented, if we all believe in the mission and we're in a culture that we all believe in the mission how we get there and the varying ways we get there and the the approaches that we take are all just, you know, they're just, there can be differences there, right? But doesn't change the mission. Paul, we talk about often on innovation, like one of the ways to tell whether you have a culture that believes and trusts in one another is where are the innovations coming from? If they're only coming from the top, probably don't have a real trusting culture because nobody below the top is willing to share and create dissonance on something that they see as an area of improvement, where in your case, your organization is on the very front line with families, in the conversations, in the homes, in the community spaces, the individuals who are sitting with 
families inside of a social service organization, they're the ones seeing and feeling the real answers and responses, not those that are back up that are in the corporate office per se, unless the corporate office also volunteers out in the field. Would you find that there's a lot of truth to that or not? I think as a theory, absolutely, right? If, you know, the foundation of innovation is the willingness to fail, right? Mm -hmm. And you have to have a strong psychological safety and a, a culture of accepting failure within mm -hmm. reason, right? If, if, if you lose $10 billion or whatever, you know, that, that's obviously a very bad failure that, that you should be afraid of <laughs> to a point. But, but we can't be afraid of failure because it's the greatest teacher, that anybody is ever going to have. So it depends on the organization if that can trickle down and be part of the bedrock. So I, I find organizations like not-for-profits, grant-funded organizations, it depends on you know how disruptive they want to be. Because a lot of the funding, as it flows through grants, is very prescriptive, and you're not allowed to do certain things. Mm -hmm which stymies that innovation. Now, at CEDA, I'm, I'm happy to say that we, we push back as much as we can within, within the foundations, and, and that starts with having good relationships with your funders and your grantors and all those type of things. But we do things, for example, in our WIC program that aren't done across the country because they're innovative and they're trying new things and they're trying to serve their clients and the customer. At the end of the day. So we have positions that don't really exist anywhere else because it serves us. So we're innovative on that end. Some of our weatherization techniques are different from others throughout the organ throughout the country. And CETA is actually a looked at across the country as a as a subject matter expert in our weatherization techniques. So we do work across several states as mm -hmm. consultants in how can we up how can we up our game in weatherization. So mm -hmm. This is something that has taken years to develop. It's not something CETA has always had, but it, it depends on who your leaders are and how much they want to embrace yeah. be, it, that idea of it's okay to fail hmm. because that will lead to better innovation at the end. Paul, can you give me a couple of examples? Like what are some of those even roles that you've carved down in the org chart that don't exist in other places? So one example is a... At a lot of places with WIC, I'll, I'll use them as an example. So you have an intake specialist, right? So the, the, the mother comes in with their children, the intake specialist does the administrative stuff, takes their name, all that, then passes off to the nutrition. We still have that role, but it's, it's called the, the WIC advocate. So they do it a step above. So they still take all that information, but the additional role of the WIC advocate is to advocate for that client, mm. to advocate for the program and why it's so important. So they've written into part of the job description for the advocate is to do outreach. So calling community partners, letting them know about the program and those type of things. So that's one example. And then a new one that was just approved that they're working on is called a WIC educator. So it's sort of a step above the the advocate and, and they help build in that career path because it used to be you'd be an intake specialist and that was it. Well, now they're building career pathing, which I think is just fantastic and is a game changer for That's the awesome. program. So the WIC educator takes that to the next level and doesn't just advocate for it, but educates people, mm -hmm. goes out into the community and teaches them what WIC means and how, why it's important 
the the nutritional aspects, the scientific research, and, and the backing behind mm. why this program is beneficial to so many new mothers in the community. So wow. those are the type of things that really get me excited and, and to showcase oh that goodness, yeah. Yeah, we're building we're disrupting, we're building for the future. Yeah. Paul, about eight years ago, maybe seven years ago, I went through a poverty simulation. And the goal of that experience was to, you know, you basically get identified as in a role and you have been given certain life circumstances and you're encouraged to follow step because most of us in our daily work, we can follow step A to B to C to D and it's linear and there's people that can guide us and it creates the, what you just said, like, man, in that program, in that poverty simulation, you identify how disconnected everything is and how hard and complicated and difficult it is. And no, if you've never lived in poverty, you don't understand that. So the goal of the simulation is to provide education to those who haven't lived through it to understand like, this is so complicated and complex. And how do I get to point A and point C if I got to somehow joint jump to W and then end over to M and N. And it's like, oh, most people leave that experience. Like I had no idea. So when I hear that you all put an advocate in place, you're actually, you would be advocating for those going through that situation where you're not all by yourself, right? And for those listening, if you've never experienced a poverty simulation, I would look it up um, and I would even think about, you know, would it be beneficial for our team or is there any leadership that we're trying to create where we could bring somebody in to actually run us through that experience? Because any leader who I know that's gone through a program, through this particular program, is like, boy, what a wide open, eye-opening experience. And we may have employees who are living that daily life every single day of their life. So if you want to understand your employees, those that you're, you know, hiring and you're supposed to be supporting, it's a great way to think about, oh no, there's nobody on my organization who's living in poverty. That may not be the case, right? Employers have a lot of responsibility in this conversation. I, I agree. I think, and I would encourage folks if they really want to challenge and, and, disrupt their own mindset is to read a, a book that was just released called Poverty by America, written by Matthew Desmond, who's a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and mm. professor in, somewhere in the Northeast, but I think maybe Harvard. But anyway, it, it really challenges, you know, that, that mindset of, well, people are poor because they don't want to work, or people are poor because they're lazy, or they just aren't pulling themselves up by their bootstraps well enough. And it's like... The, you know, these old American tropes that aren't true, you know, I, po people in poverty want to work as much as other people. They just mm -hmm. don't have the opportunities because of a lot of the systemic stuff around them that keeps them where they're at. So th this book really outlines that, gives some, some solutions-based stuff, mm -hmm. and it would really require an overhaul of a lot of our systems. And is America willing to do that? And, yeah. and I, I maintain my optimism. I hope that we can, but yeah. it, it's just getting the word out there and, and, and continuing to challenge mindsets and change minds one at a time. Yeah. Paul, for us here at the Unconventional Leadership Podcast and at the Talent Magnet Institute and at our search firm Centennial, this is a 
a mission because to your point, in order for the changes to be made, people have to be educated, right? And if I'm in a role and I'm a manager or I'm a company supervisor or I'm a leader in any level of influence or a business owner, our responsibility to help you lead unconventionally and to lead with intention is to educate you on the very things that could be impacting the world around you. Instead of just saying, oh yeah, you need a better recruiting process. No, you really need to understand what's going on with the employees that you have the privilege and opportunity to hire. And this is one of those conversations, right? When you start looking at this topic of poverty, how you change it is I think one of the angles is to get privately held and family owned and nonprofit businesses, business leaders to understand the topic so that we can think differently about how and who we employ, how we deploy our services, how we provide additional resources to our employees to help them navigate their own life experiences and life challenges. So, and I know that an organization like yours, Paul, works with a lot of corporations, right? To accomplish what you're trying to achieve. My only hope is somebody listening to this will go, huh, we've never even talked about that as a leadership team. Maybe that is 30% of our workforce that have two jobs or that have, you know, that looks like a revolving door. There could be a reason for that. So anyway, I'll get off my soapbox, but I'm really passionate about this topic. So, <laughs> yeah. Well, so am I. So I'm glad we were able to touch upon it and, and bring a little bit of light to it. So that's awesome. Awesome. Well, Paul, share with me, if you would, how do you define unconventional leadership? Un, you know, unconventional, and it might sound cliche, but to me, it is it is just thinking differently. I mean, it's it's not accepting convent convention to, to use that word. It's not accepting the status quo. It's not accepting. Well, this is the way we've always done things. It's embracing curiosity. It's knowing that you don't know all all the answers knowing what your blind spots are and then seeking out to fill those gaps. Mm. Uh, you know, I really think that it's, it's, it can boil down to as well as Socrates had said is an un, an unexamined life is not worth living. So Amen. unconventional yeah. to me is being curious and examining as many things as you can. It's mm. awesome. Well, Paul, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for your friendship and your leadership and your insights. If you're not following Paul on LinkedIn, I strongly recommend it. I know Paul's also, you're very active on Twitter. How can they follow you out on Twitter? Uh, my handle is HRPaul49. And I don't have a blue dot, but not a lot of people do these days. So that's right. For what that's worth. That's right. Well, Paul, thank you again for being a part of this today. No, thank you for having me, Mike. This was fantastic. Appreciate you. Thank you for listening to the Unconventional Leadership Podcast. We hope you gain valuable insights and inspiration from today's episode. We invite you to join us on this journey of exploration and discovery as we continue to uncover the unconventional approaches and strategies that are shaping the future of leadership. Stay tuned for our next episode. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review the Unconventional Leadership Podcast on your favorite podcast platform. 
Remember, being an unconventional leader means embracing new ideas and strategies to drive growth and innovation. So keep pushing the boundaries and challenge the status quo. And we'll see you next time on the Unconventional Leadership Podcast.